<clears throat> There's an old saying based on a line from the movie Love Story that says, love means never having to say you're sorry. According to the American Film Institute, that is the 13th most popular movie quote of all time. I don't know how they figured that out, uh, but they did somehow. And while I understand the sentiment behind this thought, love meaning, means never having to say you're sorry, I'm not entirely sure that I agree with it. The implication, of course, is that if you love someone, you will always forgive them in such a way that they, never, they will never need to apologize to you because you have already forgiven them. Therefore, if you love them, they don't have to say, I'm sorry. And this might be true that the one who is offended needs to lay down their hurt out of love for the other person, but I would argue that apologies are just as important and sometimes just as difficult as forgiving. Just as the offended loves and forgives, so too does the offender need to love and admit fault. So I want to add my own spin to this saying. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Love also means that you are willing to admit you are wrong and genuinely extend your apology to others. I mean, there is something powerful about that, right? When you can admit that you are wrong and that you made a mistake. I know it doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. It takes a little more work, a little bit more concentration, but we have to make do. Now, within these scenarios, you know, it's tough to forgive someone who has hurt you. But if you've done this before, you know this is true. It is equally as tough, if not more so, to go back to a place of hurt if you were the one who caused that hurt and take responsibility for what you did. If you know that someone is angry or upset with you and you have to, you, you know you're going to see them again and you know that you caused this problem. I mean, I get nervous just thinking about it. There is something about that moment though where you, you sort of give up control of the scenario to the one you have hurt. I mean, there's something really vulnerable about apologizing to someone who's already mad at you. You are opening yourself up to more, right? Because even if you are entirely sincere, even if you have the best intentions at heart, and you go to this person and you say, I'm so sorry that I hurt you and that this happened, would you please forgive me? What do people most often want to do in response to that? Well, you know... This really bothered me. I know, I know, that's why I'm apologizing. And sometimes they want to rehash the entire thing, blow by blow, every moment. And then you said, yeah, I, I know, I know. And then you did, I, I, I'm, I'm aware. It's a difficult moment, and if you really need to make that apology into this difficult situation, you are opening yourself up to hurt. You, you, you just are. 
because there's nothing that you can do. It's a risk. There may be more hate or harm that is poured into you. And they might be determined, if you are willing to open yourself up in this way, to hurt you as much as you hurt them. Not everyone accepts apologies. And underneath all of this is the knowledge that you were the one who set this relationship on its course. Whether you meant to or not, it is where it is in large part because of your actions. This is extremely relevant to our story this week because we need to talk about the elephant in the room. An Esau-shaped elephant. Jacob has been told by God to go back home. But there is one enormous problem. The last time he was home, he had just cheated, well, tricked his father and cheated his brother out of not only his birthright, but the blessing as well. So all Esau, the older brother, got was the leftovers. And the leftovers weren't even warm. They were ice cold. Jacob not only took advantage of the moments, but he deceived his family. And when, when he left home, he was running for his life, literally. It was not safe for him to stay there. Because Esau had promised, once my father dies, it's on. And that little rat is not going to get out of this. There's no way he can escape me. Great, so now God has told Jacob to go back home. Have any of you ever had any family estrangement before? Yeah? Isn't it weird (laughs) when you get back together and no one really knows what to do about it? Well, magnify that times 100. And that's a little bit of what we're looking at here. But a lot had changed in the years that Jacob had been away. For one thing, Jacob at this point, I think, understood a little better why Esau was so mad. He had deceived Isaac, right? He had taken advantage of Esau. He had cheated Esau. But think about what has happened in Jacob's life since he left and he moved in with his uncle Laban. Jacob himself had been manipulated by Laban multiple times, so he knew what it was like to come up against someone who was like him. And did he enjoy that experience? No. He is so much more aware of how Esau must feel. And that doesn't give him peace. It just helps him understand better what he had done. So there had to be a little bit of empathy for Esau as he had gone back. But secondly, he had wives, children, animals. He had left his home with nothing, going to Laban's, and he was returning a very wealthy man. And this also was not going to help his cause. Why? Well, all the time that Jacob has been gone and Isaac, remember when Jacob left, Isaac was basically blind So who has been the man of that family? It has been Esau. And Jacob has disappeared. So for all these years that Jacob has been gone, Esau has been running this place. 
And it has to feel like it's his, right? So when Jacob knocks on the tent door, or scratches it, or I don't know, does what it rings a bell, when he goes to that tent, not only is he there to take all of these things that Esau has been taking care of and been building up over these years, he has his own stuff, which Esau doesn't have. So it's, it, it's almost like, you know, your really wealthy, really wealthy family member coming home and taking the entire inheritance from your family, the stuff, the house that you've lived in, the place where you are. It's not kind of like that. It's exactly like that. I mean, after all, a man can never have too many speckled goats. But besides that, he was a much different person, Jacob was. On his way to Laban, he had met God. When he got to Laban, he fell in love. He's had children. He has wives. And gone was the schemer, and in his place stood a man who now had a relationship with God and followed God's lead. So having God on his side would make things better, right? You would think. But if there's anything we've learned in the Jacob story, it's that having God on your side does not guarantee that anything is going to go right for you. That is not the promise. The promise is blessing. The promise is children. The promise is all these things. But God never said to Abraham, I have the easiest job for you. So what was Jacob to do? How could he go home? But furthermore, how could he possibly explain to his brother how different he is? Would his brother allow him to be different? Or was he just going to be the little, lying, cheating brother? Despite these things, Jacob left the house of Laban to head back to his homeland, where for all he knew, his brother was sharpening a knife. He went because he knew that ultimately he had to. He had received the blessing from his father. He was the one that God will fulfill all of his promises through. So even though Jacob was afraid, he followed the direction of God because that's what he does now. <laughs> Isn't that weird? That's what he does now. He follows the direction of God. And on the way back home, the angels of God met him. So he knew that God was there with him, which is a bit of a confidence booster. To have this sort of manifestation of God so that you know I'm not going back alone. And he named that place where they had camped. What did he name it? Mah yeah, I should have practiced this. Mahanaim. We'll just go with that. And that name means two camps. And, and why he named it two camps? Well, you could obviously see Jacob's camp, but it was not the only camp there. It was also God's camp, and God was with him. And so I would have to think that Jacob thought, you know, maybe this is going to be okay. Maybe this is going to work out. 
I've got God with me. This is two camps. We got this. We got this. Be strong. People like you. You're going to be okay. So he sends out messengers, and he discovers that Esau has heard he's coming home, and Esau has sent a welcoming party of 400 men ready to meet Jacob and his family. Oh, no. I don't think Esau has forgotten what happened. It's weird, but he seems to remember it. So Jacob panicked, and rightfully so. After all, he knows very well what he did. So he divided his group into two camps. And his thinking was, if Esau attacked one camp, then the other camp could get away. And maybe they could escape these 400 men. And after that was done, and he decided who was going to go where, he did the only sensible thing. He dropped to his knees, and he prayed to God. From Genesis chapter 32, verses 9 through 12. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servants. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Okay, are there some things that stick out to you about this prayer? Yeah, there are some things that really kind of hit me. Number one, this is not what Jacob would have done when he left. So let's just get that out there. He would have searched for the right angle to play or he would have run for his life. And, you know, that early Jacob might have left everyone behind as well. I mean, that's within the realm of possibility. But this new Jacob got on his knees and prayed. And there are some Incredible things he said, because we know Jacob so well at this point, we read the first part where Jacob says, you told me to go, and it feels like he's angling again. You told me to go, so you better protect me. But then the prayer turns, and he says something we have never heard him say before. I am unworthy of you, God. God is no longer to Jacob a piece of this puzzle that needs to be turned and manipulated to get it into the form that he wants it to be. God is now truly God to him. And therefore, he recognizes that in front of God, who is he? No one. He is undeserving. God has chosen him. And he knows at this point that he has done nothing to earn God's favor. And then he does another un-Jacob-like thing. He pleads for the lives of others, not himself. And he has a legit concern, right? 
He doesn't know how angry Esau is. I mean, the 400 men is not a good sign. But he doesn't know the attitude of the group. He can only assume that this is not going to go well for him. And he is so worried, he looks at his wives and children and he thinks, what if they just plow through us? And they kill my wives, they kill my kids, all my family is gone. God, please don't let this happen. Oddly enough, he says very little about himself. He does say, save me from the hand of Esau. But the meat of his prayer is for others and for God to do as he had promised. But he's still Jacob, which means, you know, he does understand what to do in some of these situations. So he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send gifts to Esau. I know he's coming, so I'm going to send stuff his way. He decides to send 550 animals, a portion of the animals that he has. I can barely imagine what this looked like, this huge mass of people and animals traveling across the wilderness. It's, it's a giant petting zoo with he goats, she goats, ewes and rams, camels, cows, bulls, and donkeys. Now, now maybe Jacob was thinking something like this. There are two ways to lose everything I have. One is to give it away as a gift to Esau. The other is to let Esau kill everyone and take it. I choose life. I choose to give it now. But here's what he did. He staggered the animals into different herds so that as Esau is coming across and Jacob is coming this way, a small herd goes out first, and then a small herd goes out after them, and then a small herd, so that as Esau hits here, this first herd comes to him. These are gifts, the person who is taking the animals says, for you from your brother Jacob to Esau. And Esau might think that's it. But however long later, another herd comes up, and then another, and then another, and then another. So that by the time Jacob is thinking, we actually meet wherever that's going to be, he will have this huge amount of animals. And he will see that I'm trying to make things right in any way that I can. So after this was done, they crossed the river and he sent his family away so that he would be alone. And here is where the story takes a truly unexpected twist. Now, the last time that Jacob was alone in the middle of the wilderness, what happened to him? God came to him. And spoke to him, and he had the vision, and he understood for the first time, remember, God was here all along, and I did not know it. So I wonder what his expectation was when he found himself in the middle of the desert. I have to believe praying to God. What did he think was going to happen? I 
can guess he thought God might show up. God has already shown up multiple times. Here's what happens. That night, from Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32, that night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Okay, there is a lot to unpack here. Um. For me, this is one of the more unexpected moments in the Bible. Uh, and it's kind of weird. You know, it's, it, it's not, well, again, it's, it, it's unexpected. And, and the first thing is we were tricked in our reading of the story because we thought that the reunion with Esau was what this was all about. That that's the point, is for him to get back home and to see what happens and for God to do whatever he's going to do there. But we see in this story that maybe there's something else going on that we and Jacob didn't know or didn't see. Perhaps the conflict that all this was building up to was this one between Jacob and God. How many times... In my life, have I thought I was struggling against one thing and then later find out I was struggling against God? Too many times to count. Jacob was alone then and afraid for his life, trying to figure out what to do. He'd sent his family away and God, how did he respond to this moment of tension? He attacked him. And they wrestled. How long? All night. They wrestled all night. I can wrestle with my kids for like five minutes. And I need an inhaler and some Bengay. He attacked Jacob. And, and so here's the description that we get. So you have to understand that in this story, you're not supposed to understand what's happening right away. It's, it's developing in front of us so that we really don't understand the whole thing until we get to the end of this part. So a man attacked Jacob. That's all it says. A man attacked Jacob, and the two of them wrestled all night. 
and they were evenly matched. One could not beat the other. And it was equal until what happened? It says the man touched Jacob's hip and his hip was wrenched. That's a bad thing. You don't want your hip to be wrenched. I would actually like no part of my body to be wrenched. It was wrenched. But here's the astounding thing. In this moment when his hip is wrenched, what do we understand? That this is something different. This is not just a man. Okay, that makes the story more confusing to me. Because how is it that Jacob could hold his own with this more than a man? And here's what else happens. His hip is wrenched, which is supposed to make Jacob quit. And it doesn't. I don't know if you've seen Monty Python in the search for the Holy Grail. (laughs) But there's a black knight who loses several limbs. And as his arm is cut off, he says, it's merely a flesh wound. His other arm is cut off. It's just a scratch until he's left on the ground with no arms and no legs, calling the guy a coward for walking away. I have to believe that's kind of how Jacob is at this point. He is hurt, and he will not let go. So he's wrestling with this form of God. I I don't know how this looked, but I imagine he's almost like got his arms wrapped around his leg, and he will not let go. Won't do it. Jacob was seriously hurt. In fact, this injury, this wrenching, will never go away. He lives with it for the rest of his life. And therefore, every time he limps, he's reminded of his struggle. He's reminded of his struggle. The one who God said would have a life of conflict and struggle now is a permanent physical reminder of what that struggle actually is. He had seen God's face, he said, and lived. But he's changed by this experience, by this struggle, and he will not be in the same shape as he was before. But the man still wanted Jacob to let go. (laughs) Enough already. Now, question, could the man have made Jacob let go? Yes. Yes. But Jacob refuses unless this man gives him a blessing. What does Jacob understand is happening here? I mean, God has already given him great blessing and promise, right? But Jacob looks at this struggle, and he realizes in the middle of it somehow that there is something more to this than me wrestling with this random person. So he holds on for a blessing. The sun was coming up, and the God-man, angel thing had to leave. He couldn't let, allow Jacob to see him in the full light, or Jacob would perish. And so God shows mercy and grace to Jacob, 
by stopping it and giving him a blessing. And the blessing is enormous. It's enormous. It is bigger, I would say, than anything that has been promised to him so far. He gave him a new name. After all, Jacob's name was the heel grabber, the trickster, the schemer. And his new name becomes Israel. That word means God rules or God preserves, but there is another word involved here in the Hebrew, which means to strive, to struggle, to fight with God. It can mean a couple of different things. It can mean that, easy, that either Israel fights with God or God strives with Israel. Either way, it communicates that when Israel gets into a struggle, who will be there? God. Sometimes that struggle will be with God. Sometimes God will be with them in the struggle. But God is always there. God will always be a part of the fight. Let me say that one more time. God will always be a part of the fight. He will accomplish his plan, and Israel will continue to strive with God. For Jacob, as a person, this is an enormous blessing. But here's the thing. God could have renamed Jacob something at any time. The blessing doesn't come until after the struggle. The change of identity doesn't happen until Jacob has it out with who? With God. Jacob and God may have struggled with one another, and we know that they were not truly equals. And, and Jacob asked for his name, and this God says no, but he was given this other name. There's a lot, as I said, to unpack here. But here's the question I want you to consider. Why did this moment, the struggle and renaming, have to happen right then when Jacob was going through the stress and worry and anxiety of going home, not knowing how much danger was in front of him. Why did it have to happen then? Didn't he have enough to worry about? And if God was on Jacob's side, wouldn't he have given like an antidepressant or some sort of anxiety medication for him to take so that Jacob could stop worrying? Why did this happen then? before he got home. I want to suggest a couple of reasons to you. This conflict changed the nature of the relationship between God and Jacob. He had seen the face of God and lived. He had not experienced God completely, of course. 
It is why the God-man left. He could not be fully revealed to Jacob in the daylight. But after this experience, God was not the same God as he was to Jacob before. Why? Because the two knew each other better after the fight. God showed himself as the one who cannot be manipulated. He will fight back. And if he wants to, he can wrench more than your hip. He'll disable you, and it hurts, but it's for the sake of what he needs to happen, that God will push you as far as he can. And God, what did God learn about Jacob? That for all of Jacob's scheming, cheating, lying, what is the one thing that God wanted from Jacob? What is the one thing that God wanted from Abraham? What is the one thing that God wants from his people? That they would hold on and not let go. Refuse, in fact, to let go until God shows himself and gives a blessing. It reminds us of the experience that Abraham went through in sacrificing Isaac. And what the passage tells us is that after that struggle, God knew Abraham was the right choice. Think about how this episode puts the rest of what is going to happen into perspective. Does Jacob still need to go meet Esau? Yes. Is Esau still a threat? Technically, perhaps. Practically, no. Because who will be with Jacob? Who will struggle with him? God will. And Jacob held on to what was important in his fight with God, and he left the encounter with this new name that God fights with me. So honestly, even though it was the longest night ever, perhaps, what did Jacob have to fear? But secondly, Jacob's identity needed to change before he went back home. Because you see, he is not the schemer and the heel grabber anymore. He is someone different, and God needed to give him the gift of a new identity. He had become Jacob, the man of God, the one who struggles with and against and for God. And I don't know if this was for everybody. I do know, I think, what it must have meant to him because, you see, Israel had to put Jacob behind him. After this conflict with God, he could no longer be the same person. He had to fight for it. But God told him, you are no longer who you were. You are a different person. So where do we go with this story? There's a lot here that we could take away from this today. 
There's a lot that we can learn and pull out of this. But I want to suggest just a couple of simple things. We see in this story, and God even says, you have struggled with God and with man and have prevailed. God shows us something. That God is at the center of things. He's at the center of the blessing, and he's at the center of the struggle. And sometimes we may not know that we're struggling against him. And we also kind of think that we probably shouldn't have to struggle with God, because what should God do at our weakest moments? He should build us up. But I want to suggest something to you. It may not be until your weakest moments that you understand you're struggling against God. And it may not be until your weakest moments that you can look God in the face and fight with him. And it may not be until these moments that you can go through the pain that you have to go through. That you can have your hip wrenched. That you can have that scar that you need to remind you that God is with you and fighting with you. And it may not be until you go through the worst that who God wants you to be comes to the front. Does that have to happen? I don't know. I kind of hope not. But I know it's what happened to me. That I had to be completely broken down. And it was not until I was completely broken down that I understood how big God is. And it was not until I didn't know where he was that I figured out he is with me and this scar reminds me of that. And maybe it didn't take the form I would have wanted it to, but it happened. And I am more grateful that it happened than I am sorry that it went the way it did. Because what does it take, church, for us to be broken down enough to where God becomes the God who struggles with us? What does it take for us to stop fighting all the other things around us and become who God wants us to be. I don't want you to be confused, though, because God wants us to win the fight. You understand that, right? The only reason Jacob held on so long was because God let him. He did not want to destroy Jacob. But how far did he push him? Pretty far. And Jacob didn't let go. 
And God says, my man, the man who fights with me. We have to ask ourselves, I think, is a life without limps a life lived outside the presence of God? Abraham encountered God and nearly murdered his son. David encountered God and had to run for his life. Paul encountered Jesus and was blinded. Peter encountered Jesus and died upside down on a cross. Jesus encountered God, was God, and was tortured and killed for those that he loved. It is hard to look at this story and not understand that God works through our lowest moments to turn us into something else. And we get so caught up in the causality of things. Well, why is God letting this happen? Or why is God having this happen? But that's not what the story is. The, the story is not about, is God, is God causing Laban to, to put Jacob through these things? Or is God, it's not that story. The story is that God is there all the time. But Jacob is not finished becoming Israel until he has it out with God. And he knows that God is God. Because he asks for the blessing, and God knows that Jacob won't let go. And so here are the words that I never thought I would say. Jacob might be a really good example for us. He's a fighter, you see. And now that he has God on his side, he will not let go. And furthermore, he demands that God give him something more. Not out of selfishness or greed or anything else, but he understands how this works now. God, I'm with you, and this has been really rough, but there is blessing on the other side of this conflict. Church, there's blessing on the other side of the conflict. And Jacob wasn't looking for a new name. We don't know what blessing he wanted, maybe more speckled goats. But Jacob gets something much better. He gets to meet Esau and introduce himself as God struggles with me. I am Israel. Jacob is gone. There's a song that you might be thinking of. I was thinking of it. I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one, faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. After all, when we call ourselves Christian, what are we calling ourselves? Children of God. Brothers of Jesus and sisters of Jesus. Our identity is tied to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this story as weird and convoluted as it is. 
And God, we see in it how sometimes we think the things that happen in our life are about one thing. But God, you are at the center of all things. You may not be causing it, Father, but you are the one who brings some sort of blessing and resolution out of stuff. And God, it may be long and painful, but I am grateful, God, that we are not left to struggle on our own. And I'm grateful, God, that you give us the grace to struggle with us. Instead of just writing us off as silly people who have no idea what's going on, God, you struggle with us. And you give us the unfathomable gift of having a new identity. That we, God, are not alone. And that whatever may be in front of us, Father, you will be with us through victory, through defeat, through good times, through struggle. God, you are the God who fights with us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.